Just a quick update. Some of you have been have asked this morning. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I asked you to pray for a written exam that I was taking. I got news this week that I passed that, and so I'm on to. Well, thank you. I'm very glad I passed that. I still have one more round to go, so I test in another week, week and a half. Um, but thank you very much for the prayers, Adam and I greatly appreciate those and the words of encouragement as well. So thank you for that. Um, yeah. We are going to be continuing in our series on 1 Peter. We're in 1 Peter chapter 2. And before we begin, we're actually going to open in prayer. We're going to go right into prayer. Um, just give this time to God. I, I, I was telling Kyle and the, the worship band this morning, this is such a beautiful set because those songs were just about the holiness of God and the worthiness of God. And, and that's really where we need to be as a people is in awe of His holiness before His throne. So please join me in prayer and then we'll jump into 1 Peter 2. God, we thank you that you are indescribable, that you are untamable, that we cannot fully fathom the depths of who you are, that you are all-powerful. Lord, we, we thank you for these things and we praise you for being these things. We praise you as the only one truly holy, 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 as worthy of all our praise, of worthy of our best, worthy of our all. And so, God, may this be a continuation of returning to the heart of worship. May this time be all about you. May it be your words, Lord, get rid of me. Teach me, even in these moments, to just follow the Holy Spirit. May we listen with ears opened by you, with a heart that desires to know you and praise you and to make you known. May this part of our worship this morning be pleasing to you, Lord. Sanctify us in this. Make us holy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're getting into, and if anybody read ahead or knows where, where Peter's going, we're getting into a passage right now that might step on our toes. It's, it's some sensitive verses. These are verses that tend to ruffle people's feathers. That's okay. We're going to look at it. We're going to surrender to God. We're going to submit to His Word. But before we dive into that, I, I want to remind us, because like I said, I mean, this is a passage that we were talking about at the elders' retreat, and, you know, I said where we were going, and I mentioned this passage. I said, I think this is a passage that the American church in the last two years really demonstrated that we don't take this passage all that seriously all the time. This is a passage of Scripture that I think the American church demonstrated too large of a degree of comfortability with rejecting these verses. So this is, prepping this stepped on my toes. Okay, preparing this message ruffled my feathers. So I want to remind us all of who's writing this letter. Because it's easy sometimes to think of the people who wrote the Bible letters, who wrote the books of the Bible, as these just perfect, flawless, incredible people who never messed up any way, shape, or form, right? So it's important to remember who Peter was and the perspective that he's writing from before we get into this section. John 18.10, this is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. They're coming to take Jesus away. John 18.10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. We're going to revisit that passage. John 21.15-16, 
This is Jesus has returned and he's engaging with the apostles. And it's where you see the restoration of Peter. If, you, if you're familiar with the story of the crucifixion, you know that Peter denied Jesus three times. And so then when Jesus resurrects and comes back, we see Jesus restore Peter. But in doing so, he asks him, he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, I love you. And Jesus repeats, do you love me? And Peter says, yeah, I love you. Jesus is saying, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter was saying, I, I phileo you. I brotherly love you. I familially love you. And Jesus was reminding him, no, Peter, you're called to agape love me. So remember a few sermons ago when we looked at when Peter tells the church, hey, look, church, you have to mature from phileo love to agape love. That's a hard lesson. That's a high standard. That's a tough calling that Peter gives the church. Peter gives the church this lesson because Jesus first had to walk Peter through this lesson. Peter had to learn to mature from phileo love to agape love. Matthew 16, 21 through 23, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That's a harsh statement to come from Jesus. So remember a few sermons ago where we looked at this idea of thinking rightly, where he says, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Christians, you must mature to right thinking. Peter is able to instruct the church and exhort the church to mature to right thinking because Jesus called Peter out for wrong thinking. And so these lessons that we see that Peter calls the church to, these lessons that Peter is writing to the church and reminding of them, yes, they may be difficult, yes, they may be challenging, but we see in Peter's life that he's writing from a place of been there, done that, messed it up, was extended grace by Jesus, was taught the right way by Jesus, now I'm passing it on to you. And so it's important for us to remember that Peter was not perfect in this. Your elders and I are not perfect in this. Your favorite pastor of all time, who you have all his tapes, CDs, whatever, I mean, the podcast, like, he is not perfect in all of this. We are broken people in need of grace, in need of a Savior. And so Peter, from his place of graceful forgiveness, is able to call the church to these same things that Jesus called him to. And I think that's a beautiful lesson and reminder for us as we study Scripture. But then in that, we come to this passage in 1 Peter. This is 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 11. This is right after you're a chosen people, a race, a royal priesthood, called like this honorable calling of being a royal priesthood. But then what's part of it? He goes on and he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. 
honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. There's some tough things in that passage. So the first question that we see in this that we all have to ask ourselves today is when we engage with the Bible passages that step on our toes, when we engage with the Bible passages that push against what we're comfortable with, what we're okay with, that push against our ego, that push against our arrogance, that push against our idolatry, that push against our bitterness, how do we engage with those hard Bible passages? What does Peter say? He says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. So when we listen to a Bible passage that we may not like, do we respond in the passions of the flesh? Do we respond with ego? Do we respond with, well, surely I can't be wrong. I'm the exception to this. No, 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 God, if you just understood how, how much they mistreated me, then you would see that I'm justified in my anger and resentment. Do we respond to the difficult Bible passages in the passions of our flesh? Or... Do we respond in an honorable, God-fearing way? And then we also see in that introduction to this thought in verse 12, we see why it's so important to engage with this hard, high standard. And because this whole passage is about our conduct among unbelievers. We've looked at, if you look back at the last few sermons, we looked at having purified your souls to, by obedience to the truth. This is the individual result in your life. And then from there, Peter progresses to, okay, this is now what happens within the body of Christ, within the bride, within the church, in purifying your souls to obedience to the truth. And now he's transitioning to, okay, this is now how you relate to the unbelieving world. So he's talking about the church's relationship with, interaction with the unbelieving world around us. And he lays out in verse 12 why it's so important that we consider this. He says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That day of visitation is not talking about the one-day day of judgment. The day of visitation was a phrase, it was an idea used in the New Testament to talk about God interacting with someone and offering redemption. It was used to refer to God redeeming people. You see it in Luke 1, 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. It's the same idea in Luke 7, 15 and 16, and in Luke 19, 44. So as we engage with things that are hard, that is a high standard to pursue, we have to realize that God says, look, do this in a God-honoring way so that when I visit unbelievers, your behavior lends testimony and brings glory to me. 
So when the unbelieving world looks at the church, they should see testimony of who God is. They should see testimony of the truth of what God says. You know what phrase I hate? I, I absolutely hate this phrase. Do as I do, or do as I say, not as I do. That's a garbage phrase, because if you actually believed it was that important for me to do, then you would do it yourself. The church cannot be in a place of saying to the unbelieving world, hey, do as I say, just not as I do. Our behavior should offer testimony so that when God visits the Gentiles on the day of redemption, on the day of visitation, they can look at the behavior of the church and say, okay, you know what? Yeah, we see testimony to what you're saying, Lord, in the lives of your children, of your church. And that's why these hard passages are so essential that we engage with and think rightly about. Because what is he really talking about here very specifically? He's talking about how we relate to the unbelieving world, specifically secular authority. The governmental, social, political authority in our lives. And we are deluding ourselves if we think that God doesn't take this seriously. He does. He lays it out in those verses. I mean, how many times does he say? He says, be subject to every human institution, whether it to the emperor or to governors. He goes on, he says, honor everyone, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters. For to this you have been called. Like, over and over again, God says, hey, your relationship with, the way you respond to those in sociopolitical authority over you is important to me and I have laid out a standard for it. And we have to understand what that standard is. And so the first thing we have to understand when we consider this idea is that nobody is in authority outside of God's sovereignty. Romans 13:1. let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. God. The politician that you love, they were instituted by God. The politician that you can't stand, they were instituted by God. There is no authority outside of that which God has instituted. God's sovereignty is not changed by election results. This is hard for us. This freaks us out. We don't like this idea. We like the idea that God's in control when the election goes our way. When it doesn't go our way, that's when we start to throw these passages out the window. That's hard. Peter talks about this. We'll circle back to that passage back in John. So with that in mind, that God is sovereign over all, that God has instituted all authority, he very clearly lays out in his word that we are called to respect and submit to our authority figures. Proverbs 24, 21, My son, fear the Lord and the king, and do not join with those who do otherwise. Jeremiah 29, 7, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. What's the context of Jeremiah? 
Israel has been invaded by a foreign nation and forcibly removed from their homes and taken into another land as exiles, as prisoners, as slaves. And Jeremiah says, on behalf of the Lord, yes, seek the welfare of those people. Pray for them. Peter is writing to a group of believers who their governing authority just told a lie about them, and they are now, many of them, forcibly removed from their homes by an angry mob, homeless. All their possessions have been stripped away, and Peter says, hey, honor the people who just did that to you. Paul, in writing in Romans where he says, be subject to every authority, the church was undergoing persecution like we aren't even familiar with, and he says, hey, be subject to these people. We can't deny this. Matthew 22, 15 through 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, Jesus. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness is inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Romans 13, 5 and 6, Therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Anybody remember the sermon in the life of Jesus where we looked at Matthew, the Apostle Matthew, tax collector? Grand Moke, Little Moke, the two levels of tax collection in the Roman Empire. How Little Mokes, which is what Matthew was, had full right under the authority of the Roman government to cheat and steal the Jewish people however badly they could. I'm a little moke in the Roman Empire. Joe lives on my street. I charge him a tax to drive on the road every day. It's 20 bucks. One day Joe goes to leave and I say, hey, it's 40 bucks. Why? Because I feel like it. Give me the money or the soldiers are going to come for you. That was the authority that little mokes had, that tax collectors had. And in Romans, he says, pay the taxes. Be subject to them. It's not a question of justice. It's not a question of fairness. This is what he calls them to. Hebrews 10.34, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Joyfully accepted abuse from the hands of governing authority. Because their focus is eternal. I mean, Old Testament to New Testament, God lays out, People, be subject to the governing authority in your life. This is what I call you to. Not because it's easy, but because it's what I lay out for you. Why? Why? This is hard. This is tough. Like I said, prepping for this stepped on my toes. This is a struggle if we're being real. So why is it so important? Well, Peter lays that out as well. Consider verses 13, 15, 16, and 19. Be subject for the Lord's sake. 
Verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Verse 19, for this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. We're free, absolutely. But Christian freedom... Freedom in Christ is never to be used as an excuse for narcissistic, self-indulgent behavior. Christian freedom is never an excuse to reject God's commandments because I'm a free person. Freedom is bondservant to Jesus. So he lays out in this letter, he says, do this mindful of God. Do this according to the will of God. Do this for the glory of God. So we obey, we submit, we subject ourselves, we respect, we seek the goodwill of those in authority of us, not because we like them. I'm not, God is not saying you have to magically like every authority figure you disagree with. He's not saying you don't get to have your opinions, you don't get to have your perspective on issues, on stances. He's not talking about you're inviting them over for, you know, burgers every weekend to hang out because you're best friends. He's talking about your behavior, your speech, your attitude. That's where the respect comes from. The subjection comes from. And we do this to obey God. 1 Corinthians 7.22, For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. So the real question is, what's greater? Our desire to obey God or our opinion of an individual? If God calls me to subject myself to respect someone in authority over me, and I say, well, no, my opinion of them trumps that, then I have to ask myself, what's greater? My desire to obey God or not? To show you how seriously God takes this, consider Titus 1.6, talking about the qualifications for elder, pastor elder, the highest position in the church, servant leadership. It's not a position of arrogance, but the highest level of servant leadership in the church where God lays out his strictest qualifications. In Titus 1.6, he says an elder cannot be unruly. The word he actually uses is insubordinate. He says an elder cannot be insubordinate. And that word means an attitude of rejection for appointed authority. Someone who's insubordinate is someone who is defiant towards the people who are in authority over them. God says, yeah, if you're insubordinate, you are not qualified to lead the church. God takes this very seriously. But then there's also a cool side effect to this. There's a benefit to this that strengthens, not only does it strengthen our testimony, it actually silences critics of Christianity. What did he say in those passages? He says in verse, in verse 15, this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. We see it again, Titus 2, 7 through 8, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. When we do this, it obeys God. I mean, stop right there, points over. Obedience to God, all right, we're in. 
But God says, look, not only when you obey me in this, you put to silence ignorant, foolish criticism of your faith. And then he also offers the flip side of when we choose not to do this. Romans 13, 2, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. God lays it out. This is obedience to me, or you can choose to disobey. There are consequences to that. There are blessings to choosing to obey. Peter lays this out for the people in his letter. So why do we pursue this hard, difficult thing? Why do we humble ourselves? Why do we bite our tongue? Why do we learn to think rightly? Why do we speak rightly? Because it's obedient to God, first and foremost. And then second, we see something else beautiful in 1 Peter, that it's an imitation of Jesus. And we can't be shocked that this is not easy. I mean, consider this, 1 Peter 2, verses 20 to 23. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God, for to this you have been called. We've been called to this. God doesn't spring this on us. This isn't a switcheroo. It's not you're expecting one thing and then God's like, ha, fake out. Here's this other thing. We've been called to this. He's laid it out from the beginning. 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 12. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Don't raise your hands. I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad. Right now, internal self-reflection. Believer, someone who claims Jesus is Lord of your life, do you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus? If you answer yes, you will be persecuted. There's no surprise here. So we have to prepare ourselves for it. We have to be ready for it. And one of the ways we do so is by imitating Jesus. What's he go on to lay out in those passages? He says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Yeah, but you don't understand. That world, that leader, that authority figure, they think so lowly of Christianity. They make fun of Christianity. They abuse Christianity. They mock Christianity. They revile Christianity. Yeah, you know why? Because they reviled Christ first. Christ did not insult or mock in return. When suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That phrase there, leaving you an example, where it says, Christ did this first, leaving you an example. That's one word. It's one word that means a writing to be copied. Literally, put a piece of thinner paper over top the original, and then you trace it out. You don't make changes to it. You don't add flourishes. You don't take away. It's, hey, this is the first. This is the original. You copy it exactly. 
This is what we have been called to do. Jesus is the original. Jesus is the writing to be traced over exactly, to be copied exactly. And in part of that, you see submission and respect to those in authority. Matthew 26, 50 to 54, when I said we'd revisit that John passage. This is Matthew 26, starting in verse 50. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. This was Peter that we read earlier in John. And Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? See, Jesus' submission to authority in that moment wasn't a matter of freedom. It wasn't a matter of Jesus being powerless. He says to Peter, he's like, whoa, hey, no, stop. Well, you think this situation's beyond me? You think that they're arresting me only because I can't do something about it? You think that I'm weak in this moment? He says, look, if I wanted, I would have, God would command legions of angels. But then we would not be in submission to God's will. So Peter was rebuked for rejecting and resisting authority when it was against the will of God. Jesus lays this out. So we do this, we respect, we submit ourselves to authority to obey God. We respect and we submit ourselves to authority to imitate Jesus, to silence critics. I mean, this is what He lays out in Scripture for us. This is what we must consider in our own lives. And now I do see an exception. Before, right, you don't seek out the one exception. That doesn't disprove the rule. But I also want to acknowledge, I do see an exception. But this must be the standard by which we evaluate our response to this. And pay attention to who this also involves. This also involves Peter. But this involves Peter after Jesus has restored him. This involves the changed Peter. And I love the attitude difference. I love the approach difference, the behavioral difference you see compared to Jesus resisting, or uh, Jesus, compared to Peter rejecting authority in the Garden of Gethsemane. And now look at Peter in Acts 4 and Acts 5. Because what we see in Acts 4 and Acts 5, and what I think is a biblical, permissible situation to not submit to authority, is when authority is commanding us to do something that is explicitly against God's commands not against our opinions, not against our perspectives on an issue, not against our feelings, not against our emotions, but when authority is commanding us to engage in behavior that is explicitly contradictory to what God has commanded of us, then I do see biblical permission to not submit to that authority. But it still must be done in respect. We never get to be rude or arrogant in this. So look at Peter's behavior now in Acts 4 and Acts 5. This is two separate occasions. Acts 4, 
starting in verse 18. So the leaders called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And then you jump ahead to Acts 5, verses 27 through 29. And when the leaders had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest, this is a second occasion. And the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. That's where I see an exception. When God has said, you must do this behavior. And those in leadership say, you are forbidden from doing this behavior. Okay, well then respectfully, we must submit ourselves to God rather than to you. When Peter's talking about it, he says, you do what's right in your eyes. He says this to the leaders. He acknowledges that they are still in authority. He's like, look, you, you do what you're going to do. We're going to obey God. So I do see opportunities, or rather situations, where we do not submit to the authority when they are calling us to a life that is exactly opposed to what God has called us to. But it's still done with grace and gentleness and respect. And if it's not that situation, well then we have to acknowledge that God has called us to subject ourselves to those in authority. Consider this passage in Titus. Oh, my bookmark fell out. Well, okay. We can get there quickly. Titus. Titus 3, 1 through 8. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our day in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Remember when Peter talked a while, put away the passions of the flesh, abstain from those? It's laid out in Titus. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. This is what we've been called to. I see no way around it. I see no way of dismissing it. I see no way of rejecting it. This is what God has called us to. He instructed His people in this Old Testament through the New Testament. So we have to ask ourselves, is this a part of the Bible that I am going to accept or not? The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, able to pierce through, able to cut away we might need to have something cut away from us. 
So we have to ask ourselves, are we going to submit to the Word of God or not? Peter called the church to this in an extremely difficult time of their lives. I believe God is always calling His church to this. Peter wasn't perfect. You're not going to be perfect. I'm not going to be perfect. Peter was committed to holiness for obedience and glory of Jesus. I want us to be a church that is committed to the same thing. So this week as we consider this, here's Titus 3, 1 through 8. I forgot I put it up there. Genesis 39, 1 Samuel 24, and Daniel 6. Read these chapters and look at the lives of these godly people. Look at how they responded to authority in difficult times, in unfair times, in unjust times, in times that would have been easy for them to say, whoa, whoa, hold up. I'm in the right on this. But read Genesis 39, 1 Samuel 24, Daniel 6, and then we're also going to read Acts 4 and Romans 13. And the self-reflection, the question is simple. Does my behavior and speech indicate a proper God-honoring respect for those in authority over me? Am I imitating Jesus in this aspect of life? Prayer ideas apply acts to these verses. Praise God for the example of Jesus. Confess when we fall short or reject it. Thank Him for grace and forgiveness. Thank Him for mercy. I love that that, that section ends with, and let's end with, right? By His wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer. Thank God that He embraces us and wants us to return. And then ask Him for strength to do this. Ask Him for a spirit humble enough to do this. A spirit that desires to honor Jesus, to be like Jesus in doing this. Please join me in prayer. Lord, I confess when I've rejected these verses in my own life. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your patience with us. I confess when this church has not done that well. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you that you have called us to a high holy standard. Thank you that it has been modeled for us by Jesus. Lord, teach us how to trace our lives over his, how to copy his every way. Make us like Christ in this, Lord. May our lives put to silence the talk of foolish ignorance. May our lives lend testimony to the truth of who you are and what you have called us to. We trust you with these things. Lord, we lift up those in authority over us. We pray for the various mayors of the towns that we all represent. We lift up Governor DeWine, our senators, our representatives in Congress. We pray for the judges on the Supreme Court, all of them. We lift up President Biden and his cabinet, all the leaders in the White House. Lord, we, we acknowledge that you have instituted their authority. Teach us how to pray for them. Teach us how to respect them. Lord, if they know you, praise you and, and thank you that they know Jesus as Lord. Take them deeper in their walk. For any of those leaders, any of our leaders who don't know you, God, would you bring them to the cross? Bring them to salvation. Bring them 
to redemption, God. Visit them and redeem them. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.